The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, RAF Form 414, Volume 6. As you may recall, I left you, lovely listener, in Cyprus, having enjoyed a magical night in a local taverna and with a slightly sore head, about to commence flying the Phantom on our annual armament practice camp. However, before I could be let loose with a fully armed gun pod, there was the usual local area familiarization flight to accomplish. Tony, who had been assigned as my navigator from the day I arrived on the squadron, climbed into the back seat and we set off to look around Cyprus. It was early in the morning, so the first thing to do was to wake up the Russians in their alligator. I have mentioned the strategic importance of Cyprus to NATO as a base very close to the countries of the Middle East. RF Akrotiri was only 150 miles from Beirut, and a little further south, but not much further, was Haifa, Tel Aviv and the Gaza Strip. As a result, there were agencies and missions that I won't mention that operated from the base as well as the visiting RAF squadrons. Monitoring activity on the base was therefore something that the Soviets took an interest in, and we, as a result, took an interest in them. Semi-permanently moored off a buoy, buoy to my American cousins, about 20 miles out to sea, was a listening vessel to monitor radio and other transmissions from the base. The Soviets used to change it every few months, sometimes an alligator, sometimes a Polnochny, or something similar. Our wake-up calls weren't officially sanctioned, but we all paid regular visits to make sure that the Russian crew were kept entertained. It must have been pretty boring out there, month after month sitting in the heat, watching the tape recorders capture our inane radio chit-chat. We felt sorry for them, and thought that a low pass or two in full reheat might brighten up their dull existence. Then there was a bit of buzzing around the coast, taking a look at the beaches, trying not to get too close to the Princess Mary's Hospital, which was on a tiny peninsula near the airfield. It was a bit of a trick getting close enough to impress the nurses, who were also quartered near our own accommodation on the base, without upsetting the powers that be, and more importantly, the senior matrons, who looked down on us through bifocals, and could make the bachelors' lives hell by depriving them of female company. Then it was a quick practice diversion to Larnica, a civil airport to the east, for, at their request, a low approach and overshoot in full blower, and a minor snotting of the tower. Suitably familiarised, it was down to work with the quip, or qualified weapon instructor pilot, as he was more formally known, in the back seat as I got my first look at the flag. The first thing I noticed was that all the aircraft now sported a length of nylon string attached to the bottom of the front windshield. Once airborne, we were off to find the Canberra. Eventually we located him, stooging around in the range, and got ourselves behind. We're doing about 400 knots, and he a mere 180, so we had quite a bit of closure. At around a mile, we tell him to commence, and he would begin a gentle left turn. We'd start a descent and begin to position ourselves for the firing run. 
with the radar locked to the banner, I'd used my little pinky to move a switch to stiffen the gun sight and keep it in view. I wasn't going to let it do its own thing until a little bit later. We continued to close, a little in lag of the camera, so that the angles didn't build up too much, and with the ranges being called off by the quip, the flag started getting closer. It was 6 foot by 30 foot, about 2 metres by 10 metres, so not huge. At the appropriate range, I'd ease the pipper up onto the flag and start tracking the rear. I was trying to make the adjustments small and smooth and not pedal the big phantom around. This was all about accuracy. The countdown cadence from the back seat continued, and the Hessian banner grew until he called, Release! I let the gun sight loose, and it started to track up the flag. Ready, fire, break! The fire came up 400 yards, about 370 metres, and... With a couple of hundred knots of closure, the brake call, a hundred yards closer, came quickly. The brake was a rolling pull, using both rudder and aileron to roll over the top of the flag, followed by a pitch up and a reversal to position for the next pass. I got to pull the trigger, but the gun wasn't loaded. This was, after all, a safety checkout for me to see if I was okay to continue to the next stage. After 15 minutes, the next victim had turned up, so we departed, but not home. Flying hours are never wasted, and the quit was going to give me my annual duel check, so it was time to prove that I could still fly the beast. A lot sweatier, and I'm back on the ground and in the little cine room for the debrief. The film from the Telford gun camera has already been developed, and now I'm being subjected to an ultra-slow-motion replay of each pass of the flag. Now the bit of string on the windshield becomes obvious. I couldn't really see it from the cockpit, but it shows up clearly in the film, and shows if I'm trying to yaw the aircraft to keep the pipper on the flag. Apparently, all is well, and although my technique is far from ideal, I'm supposed to be safe to fly with my navigator next time. So the next day, Tony climbs into the back seat, and off we trot. The pattern is becoming familiar now, and the cadence of the calls becoming ingrained. It's like a weird metronome, as Tony calls off the ranges, and I interject with the commence call, followed by in dry. Clear dry comes the clearance from the camera pilot, who also acts as the range safety officer, and the calls from the back seat recommence. I match them with my position so that when we get to the firing range, I'm about 18 degrees off the banner, a safe angle to ensure that my shells keep well clear of the tow. I'm pulling the trigger, but the magical sound of the Vulcan cannon is still quiet. I'm just shooting photons through the gun sight camera, which will subsequently be dissected by the QYs. It gets a bit like flying holding patterns, and the only exciting bit is the dash back to the airfield for a hundred foot run and break into the circuit. Alpha dispersal isn't far from the threshold, and the troops sweating away working on the jets always get a kick out of a low break. In the cramped cine room, the QIs produce weird gizmos like curved rulers, which they lay up against the screen to measure the range of the banner and the angle off, 
They compare the actual boresight point of the gun with the angle off and the range to predict where the rounds would have gone and give a little tut-tut interspersed with an occasional hmm of approval. A couple of these dry trips and at last I'm cleared to go live. Now I'm a bit nervous. Never done this before. Fired the gun, that is. Fired anything on the Phantom, come to that. When I sign for the aircraft, there's a section reminding me that I have a live gun. A number of rounds and the colour. The colour is important. I won't be the only one to shoot on the flag, so to separate each pilot's score, the tips of the rounds are dipped in a special paint. It's gloopy stuff that doesn't want to dry properly, so that, should it go through the Hessian flag, it'll leave a telltale smear of colour. Everyone wants red. It marks well. Green and blue are okay, but nobody likes purple. It's easy to mistake purple for a faint red or blue. I get purple. Here I go, then. I'm starting the first of six attempts to get two scores over 15%. Or, well, to be truthful, I've no idea what would happen, but I know the boss wouldn't be pleased. The Canberra taxis past and lines up on the runway. The banner party are waiting with the flag laid out on the tarback and the cable looped down the runway and then back to where the Canberra lies. While he waits, some guy in shorts climbs underneath his aircraft and clips the cable into the release mechanism. A thumbs up and the aged bomber starts to roll. When the 900-foot cable pulls taut, the banner shoots off down the runway flapping behind the spreader bar, which supports the flag, and has little wheels at each end to run on. As they get airborne, the banner follows and then twists to fly upright, positioned by a weight in one end of the spreader bar. We're second on the flag, so we watch the first phantom get airborne and then follow him off, entering the range well above the tow height and hold. If the aircraft below us goes US, we must be ready to step in. I dip my wing to watch him. It seems ages as the F-4 closes on the banner, and then it twists away at the last moment. I'm waiting for something to happen, but the next time I see it, a long streak of grey smoke from below his aircraft as he gives the banner a good squirt of 20mm. Then... From the quiet of the air above, it's my turn, and I'm cleared to join. I drop like a stone and pull up behind the camera. From the back seat, Tony's calm voice is giving me the calls, and I'm trying to follow the cues, but I'm behind the aircraft and slow to get into position. When he calls fire, I throw the pass away, not even close to a decent firing picture. The next is the same, and the next... I'm starting to get stage fright, and then there's a click as Tony turns his mic on and gently tells me, Look, Nick, on the next one, so long as it's safe, just fire. Get it out of your system. I follow his advice, and as he calls release, the pipper starts to move forward. Ready? Fire. I squeeze the trigger, and then a howl grows from beneath the phantom, a kind of low ghostly moan growing in pitch and volume as the gun speeds up to full firing rate, and then I'm hearing, break! I'm mesmerized, but his shout wakes me up, and I heave up and over the flag and watch it disappear below the right wing.
We get some more firing passes in. I don't feel particularly comfortable, but it's too late now. We break into the circuit and taxi back with our canopies open, feeling the warm air dry the sweat from our flying suits. After an interminable wait, everyone has fired and the camera returns to drop the banner. It tumbles from his aircraft like a wounded bird and hits the dirt beside the runway. Heaved into the back of a Land Rover, it's soon being carried into the courtyard at the detachment headquarters and laid out. I'm up in the cine room and there is plenty of tutting going on. Inconsistent angle off, poor line and too much deflection, which they hate. Too much back pressure as you fire and you over-deflect, your rounds going ahead of the target. This upsets the camera crew and risks cutting the cable. Should this happen, the flag more or less stops in mid-air and with over 200 knots of closure, there's a real risk of hitting it. What's more, the guys before will have lost their score as the banner spirals into the sparkling Mediterranean below, never to be seen again. Finally, it's time to grab a Coke and get outside to see the flag. It's neatly laid out and there's already a crowd there checking out the hits. The banner's a thin rectangle edged in black with a large black spot in the middle. The tail is all ratty from being battered by the airflow and there are marks and grooves on the heavy metal spreader bar. Not good, this is where ricochets come from. The QI gets his clipboard and starts marking, occasionally getting onto his knees to examine a hole or tear to see if it scores one or two. I'm staring. I can't see any purple at all, but then Tony rests his hand on my shoulder and points a few out. Well done, mate. At least you hit it. My score is finally added up and calculated into a percentage of the rounds fired. 13.6%. Not good, not bad. I'm not a qualifying shoe, but as Tony tells me, okay for a first go. We head back to block 101 where the fridge is full of beer and stripping down to shorts we flop out on ratty old sofas with a cold keo opened on the fire bell. The rim of the hand-cranked fire bell that adorns every block makes a perfect bottle opener, and it accompanies every fresh beer with a musical ding that I can still hear in my mind. I'm gloomy. I have to fly another dry sortie to bring back better results before I can go live again. A bit glum, but determined to do better. The next day I'm airborne again, and there are a few smiles from the QIs. I go straight up again with a full gun. I've got red this time. An hour later and I'm grinning, as I can see my colour on the banner, even as it's being unloaded. Spread out and the scoring begins. Tony is goading the QI to give a long streak a double hit, but it doesn't matter. 31.8% I'm in the groove. The next day it's a 30.8 and I'm qualified. The day after, a 45% and the boss gives me a slap on the back. Tony's grinning and the beer flows. Ka-ching, ka-ching, goes the fire bell. Academic shooting is over. Now we do more operational stuff. First a toe pattern like before, but with a strict time limit. 6.7%. And then into the full operational shoots. 
Now we meet the camera head-on, and as we pass, it starts a continuous turn for 720 degrees and then calls stop, stop, stop. What we have to do is manoeuvre around him to get into a firing position. We can shoot until the gun is empty, but no attacking from below, no breaking minimum range or angle off. The camera passes and I heave upwards into a high yo-yo and then drop back down, sliding to the outside of his turn to make some distance, and then try to get into a firing position. It's taken a while and the angle off is high, but I give it a long burst, 14 hits. The next day my dander's up, but it's only 3 hits, and the next time, 1. Going downhill fast, but after that it's 26 hits and then 14 again. I think I've got the hang of it. Before I know it, Tony and I are off the working shift, so that the other half of the squadron can have a go. For us, it's two weeks to relax in the sun. We grab wheels and head up to rustic little fishing villages like Pissuri or Paphos to eat fresh grilled fish and octopus from tavernas on the beach. Now a tourist mecca, crowded and noisy, but then quiet and traditional. Another day might see us down on Ladies Mile, a long beach, enjoying the delights of the many activity clubs that prospered there on the RAF base, water skiing, sailing, fishing, or just enjoying a beer on the beach. Then it's up into the mountains to visit the Stavaruni Monastery, or a night of culture in the Curium, ancient Greco-Reek amphitheatre, watching plays or listening to music, while we sit on the stone steps, drinking chilled pink lady and scoffing rations we pinch from the mess. The golden sun would set in front of us, reflecting off the sea, and we could hear the gentle noise of waves on the beach a hundred feet below the cliffs this ancient city was built on. There are drunken parties for the nurses and cocktail parties for the wheels, but all too soon it comes to an end, and still too junior to get to fly an aircraft home, I'm back into the Herc for the long drone to Scotland. As soon as my feet hit the Scottish soil, I'm told to prepare Section 6 of my Form 414 for my very first annual assessment. Obeying Para 3 on presentation of summaries, I craft it in red ink. I total the hours flown for the year, 234, and under assessment of ability, my boss writes average with potential, remarking a good first year. I was as pleased as punch. If you enjoyed this story, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.